Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. And if you're watching right now online, let me encourage you to take your Bibles with us and turn to the passage that was just read. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8 is our passage. I'll just tell you ahead of time, church, this is a tough passage of Scripture. So gird up your loins, Harvestigator. Because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. It is a, a tough passage, but it's going to be a faith-building passage. And my prayer this week is that our faith would be grown as a result of what we study today. Uh, but I don't want to dismiss the fact that this is, this is a difficult one for us to understand. And even, even when we understand, it's a, it's a hard one for us to accept. I heard this last week that Tommy Nelson, he actually preached this passage on Mother's Day. And when his wife found out about it, she said, you're going to preach Romans 9 on Mother's Day? And he said, yes, I am, because this is the mother of all difficult texts right here. And I think that's true and right. It is a difficult text. Some pastors just skip Romans 9. I don't want to do that. Some, Some rush in where angels fear to tread. I don't want to do that this morning either. Rather, I want to teach this difficult passage and use it to build our faith and our understanding of the sovereignty of God. There's a goodness in understanding and embracing God's sovereignty. Ageth Fernando said this once. He said, when we gaze on our sovereign God, we need only glance at our problems. When we gaze at our sovereign God, we only need a glance at our problems. I think that's right. And I think that's one of the great benefits of studying a passage like this and reinforcing the idea of God's sovereignty. When it comes to the doctrine of God's sovereignty or election, as we'll look at it today, we, we can either, you know, wring our hands over it, worried, or we can trust God with these truths. We can, you know, rack our minds trying to make sense of this, wearing ourselves out, trying to harmonize this with our preconceived notions of fairness, or we can rest in the truth of it, believing that God has everything under control and that God's going to accomplish his good purposes in our world and in our lives. I want to help you get to that latter place today, okay? It's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride before we get there. But that's where I want us to land before we're done this morning. So let's, let's get started, okay? Look at verse 6 with me. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, why is Paul saying that in verse 6? Well, he's saying that because he's still addressing the naysayers out there who are questioning God's faithfulness and his promises to the Jews. We covered this a little bit last week. People are skeptically asking Paul, oh yeah, Paul, oh yeah, God is sovereign. Our, our assurance of salvation is eternally secure. Well, what about the Jewish people? What about the Israelites? Hmm, what about them? You know, didn't God love them? Didn't God make promises to them? them? So how can you be so certain, Paul, that now God will be true to his promises to us now in light of what's happened to the Israelites? That's the objection that Paul is dealing with here. And he's already dealt with it by saying that God was faithful to the Israelites. He gave them all these great things. From verse 4, 
the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, even the Christ who was Jewish. Jesus came from a Jewish line according to the flesh. So Paul says it's not as if the word of God failed. It's not as though the word of God failed. The word of God hasn't failed. The promises of God have not failed. The issue is that, look at the end of verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So follow Paul's argument now. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because you were a born Jew doesn't make you a saved believer. Doesn't make you a saved Jew. There were plenty of unsaved Israelites in the Old Testament. You, don't, you really don't have to look that far to find them in the Old Testament. And, and you know, is, is their faithfulness, here's what Paul's asking, is, is their uh, unfaithfulness, I should say, to Yahweh a failure of God's promises? No. Just because you were born an Israelite doesn't mean you are a true believing Israelite. And that's true in our day, too, just as a parallel. You know, nobody is born a Christian in this world. You are born again as a Christian. So just because you were born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You were born again as a Christian. Let me say it this way. This is a great quote from one of my favorite scholars, Bible teachers, Grant Osborne. He says this, salvation is a matter of grace, not race. Everybody got that? Salvation is a matter of grace, not race. Salvation is a matter of faith, not family. Paul says in verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, says Paul. When I was a kid, my pastor did this thing he called the Old Testament walkthrough. And he would walk us through all of the people of the Old Testament, all of the events of the Old Testament, and he would do these, these kind of word association question and answer things. He, he would say things like, Abraham had two sons, I and I. And we would all say, Isaac and Ishmael. Then he would say, Isaac had two sons, J and E. And we would all say, Jacob and Esau. And he would just walk us through the Old Testament with this kind of question and answer kind of thing. And, you know, I, I knew even as a kid, if, if I ever got on Jeopardy, I would win the Old Testament part of that. I, I would not do good at biology or chemistry if that was the category. But Old Testament, I, I could handle that. Thank you, Pastor White, for what you did in my life as a young man. Well, very clearly, let me just tell you, just in case you haven't done an Old Testament walkthrough, Abraham had two sons, I and I, Isaac and Ishmael. And what Paul is saying here is just because you are a son of Abraham, Ishmael, that didn't secure a place for you in the kingdom of God. Abraham had two sons and only one of those sons, what, did, what, did, what was said in Genesis 22, your one and only son, the son whom you loved. Isaac, only one of those sons was the son of promise. And if you remember in the Old Testament, there's, there's that event where God promises Abraham and even Sarah that this great nation would come from him. So, but, you know, he was barren, Sarah was barren, had no children, so they, they decided to, you know, take matters in their own hand and they're going to fix this and they're going to they're get Hagar, who is Sarah's maidservant, to, to bear a child. And so she gives birth to a child and it's Ishmael. And God says, no, that's not the one. That's not the son of promise. The son of promise came later when Abraham was 99 years old. And when Sarah was 
90 years old. At 90 years old, Sarah conceived and had a son named Isaac. Paul says in verse 8, look at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. Not Ishmael, but Isaac is what Paul is saying here. In other words, here's the bigger thing that Paul is telling us. Don't doubt God's promises. Don't doubt God's promises. God is sovereign. His promises never fail. God's going to get done what he wants to get done every time. The title of our message today is Our Sovereign God. And I want to give you three ways in which God's sovereignty is confirmed and verified. And here's the first way. God's sovereignty is confirmed in his promises. Have God's promises failed? The Israelite people and us. No, says Paul, they have not. God is always going to get what God wants done. God's promises are always going to come true. God's sovereignty is confirmed in his promises. Paul argues here that Ishmael wasn't the son of promise, even though he was the son of Abraham. That's the point here. Isaac was the son of promise. Salvation is a matter of grace, not race. Salvation is a matter of promise, not paternity. And Paul verifies this truth in verse 9. By quoting Old Testament scripture, he says, for, that, for this is what was promised, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now this is a quotation from Genesis 18, and according to the book of Genesis, the Lord appeared to Abraham in human form, and he told Abraham that in about a year's time he would have a son. And, and by the way, this was after Ishmael was born. It's, you know, Abraham even begged, oh that, oh, that Ishmael might be the son of promise. Please, God, please. God says, no, 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 no. There will be another son, the son of promise. Sarah, your aged wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Do you remember what Sarah did in Genesis 18 when she found out about this? What'd she do? Y'all know what she did, don't you? She laughed. She laughed. Abraham did too when he heard this for the first time. And God has a sense of humor. God said, that son of promise of yours, guess what? His name will be laughter. Ha, 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 says God. The Hebrew word laughs is sachak. And the Hebrew name Isaac is yitzchak. He laughs. Sarah laughed because it's utterly ridiculous that they would have a child in their old age, and so God laughs too and calls the baby Yitzchak, laughter. Now, why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? This is a bigger question. Why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Why did God make Isaac the son of promise and not Ishmael? Here's the reason, and this is something you and I both need to reckon with. The reason God did that is because God wanted to do that. And God is free to do as he chooses. Salvation is not a matter of race. It's a matter of grace. He is not bound to anyone or anything. He is sovereign. And God sovereignly chose Isaac, brought about even Isaac supernaturally in order to get accomplished what he wanted to. And, and his sovereignty is confirmed in his promises. Now, you might think that Paul is going to relent now. Okay, Paul, you made your point. Now you can back off and talk about something else. Talk about sanctification, Paul. But no, <laughs> Paul drills down even further because there's this moment 
in Israel's history where God's sovereign choice is made even more clear. Because, you know, some people might say, well, it's obvious that God chose Isaac because he, he came from Sarah, Abraham's true wife. You know, it wasn't like this, you know, this dealing with Hagar and this, this situation where Abraham's misdeeds led to Ishmael and Ishmael being rejected by God. That, that's why Isaac instead of Ishmael. Well, Paul says not so fast because Paul gives us here an even clearer example that salvation is a matter of grace, not race. Look at verse 10. And not only so, not only with Isaac and Ishmael, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Isaac had two sons, J and E. What were their names? Jacob and Esau. And, and the Greek here, Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. The Greek here is even more explicit than what you see in your ESV translation. The ESV says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, uh, in Greek, it's actually one sexual act is what's being referred to. So forgive me, I'm not trying to be crass here, but, but the idea here is that one seminal discharge led to these twin boys. That's a more literal way to translate this. And what Paul is trying to make clear here is that there's, there's no discernible difference between these two from our perspective, Jacob and Esau. Same mother, same father, same conception even. They were in the same womb, even wrestling with each other before they were born. Esau was actually born first, before Jacob, just a few moments before Jacob. And, and actually it says that Jacob, as Esau was born, Jacob grabbed his heel on the way out. So they named Jacob Heel Grabber. He's a heel grabber. Don't you love these Old Testament names? I love these Old Testament names. I mean, we're doing a baby dedication next week. No, I, I doubt I'll hear any story like this about how they name their kids this way. Well, my son had a squished face when he was born, so we named him Squish Face. <laughs> Nobody ever does that at a baby dedication. I know, I've done a lot of baby dedications. Like, like Dawn said last week, this is the most baby dedicating as church indicator. I've never heard that story. So Jacob was a heel grabber. His parents called him heel grabber. Esau was red and hairy, so they called him Edom, which means red. Hey, red, get over here. And these twins were ethnically, here's the point, they were the same. Same mama, same daddy, same conception, same birth, same household, same upbringing, same everything. And yet Jacob was the son of promise and Esau was not. Why? Why? And here's the kicker, according to Paul. God's choice of Jacob was determined even before they were born. Look at verse 11. Well, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. It's a quotation from Genesis 25, by the way. God told Rebecca that even before the boys were born, God said the rule of primogenitor won't take place here. It doesn't apply here. The older, the younger, the older will serve the younger. The younger will be over the older. And then Paul quotes Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's, what, here's where God's sovereign choice of election is clear. 
Paul says, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. We're going to talk about this a little bit. God's sovereignty is confirmed in his promises. Also, God's sovereignty is confirmed in his purposes. In his sovereign, elective purposes. What does this mean? That Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Why does Paul quote Malachi 1 here? And what does Paul mean when he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls? What is Paul trying to teach us here? Well, let's be clear about this, just in case you don't know the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was a sinful character. Esau was a pleasure-seeking, hedonistic sinner. But you know what? So was Jacob. <laughs> So was Jacob. Esau was rebellious. So was Jacob. You might say, well, what about the people, the Edomites? The Edomites, the ancestors of Esau, they were a rebellious people. So were the Israelites, the ancestors of, the, of, of Jacob. They both deserve judgment. They both deserve judgment for their actions. They both deserve God's wrath. So here's the question. Why did God show mercy to one and bring judgment on the other? Why is it Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? Why did God love one and hate the other? Here's the answer. Here's the answer we have to conclude. Because God wanted to. Because God is sovereign. Because God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Because God chose Jacob. That's the point of election. Now, I know some of you have some cognitive dissonance about this. I do too. Clearly, this is a profound mystery in Scripture. It's a mystery that I don't pretend to understand, and I'm not going to be able to explain no matter how much time I had to do, to do that today. The Bible teaches the doctrine of election that God sovereignly chooses those who are his children. And the Bible also teaches man's responsibility for their actions that will be punished accordingly. I believe both. The Bible teaches both. I believe both of those biblical truths, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Those two realities, I think, hold together in Scripture in the mind of God, they hold together. And they are mysteries for us to explore, not problems for us to solve. There's a mystery to that. New, Te uh, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, he says, he says it this way. I think this is a good quote. He says, we need to remember that in the Pauline view, predestination never lessens human responsibility. And the correlation between divine sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility is ultimately a mystery that is beyond our finite comprehension. John Stott says similarly, many mysteries surround the doctrine of election and theologians and lowly pastors like myself are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. I agree, and I think a perfect harmonization of these truths, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they exist in the mind of God, but that's inaccessible to our human minds. And throughout my ministry, 
The last 12 years, I've tried to preach both. I've tried not to give just pat answers to really difficult questions when people are asking about these matters. Here's what I know to be true from Scripture, okay? Please hear me on this. When God speaks of our chosenness in his word, when God speaks of election in Romans 9 or wherever, there's several places where this comes up, he speaks of it as a comfort to us. He speaks of it in a way to affirm us and to give us assurance and to feed us assurance about his promises. And I I think it's good for us to receive it that way. In other words, your identity as a child of God, your chosenness. If you're a saved follower of Jesus Christ right now, you need to know you were chosen before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. Your chosenness should provide you with comfort, knowing that God loves you, and and it's, it's never something for you to become prideful or conceited about. Never. You didn't believe because you were smarter or more perceptive than other people. You believe because in your wretched, sinful state, God said, I will have mercy on that person. And he chose you and he saved you just like Jacob. I know for some people that causes consternation. It has for me at different times in my life. But God told us these things so that we would have confidence in his sovereignty and in his divine purposes in our world. And we need to rest in these truths. Paul reinforces that here. Paul shows us the reality is that Jacob was no better than Esau. Even in terms of nationhood, the Israelites were just as rebellious as the Edomites, just like the Jews and the Gentiles in Paul's day, just like the Americans, the Africans, the Asians, and the Europeans. The reality is that every person everywhere around the world, every nation, we are all unworthy of God's grace. We are all worthy recipients of God's wrath. All nations, all peoples, all tribes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the only reason that we don't experience God's wrath is because of God's grace. None of us deserve grace. None of us start out from a place of guiltless innocence. I know some of you think your children were born in innocence. They weren't. They weren't. It'll become clear very soon. We all start out guilty before God. I'll just try to illustrate this for you uh, here. This is is an illustration from D. James Kennedy. I found it helpful this last week. So let's just say that there are five friends of mine in the church that decide we're going to rob a bank. We're going to go rob a bank, and and they kind of put together a little squad of people to go rob a bank. And let's just say for fun that it's our elders. So Mike, George, Ryan, Paul, and Don all decide we're going to go rob a bank. And I find out about it. And I do my best to try to talk about it. No, God, you guys can't do this. It's dangerous. Y'all shouldn't do this. And they're just like, whatever, Tony, get out of the way. We're going to do it. So, you know, I decide, well, I'm going to do something about this. So I grab one of them and I hold him down. Let's just say it's for fun. It's Mike Vernon. So I grab him. I hold him down. And then those other four go off and they rob the bank and then they create some chaos and they kill a security guard and then they kill a few civilians. What's going to happen after that? Well, they're going to be captured. They're going to be convicted. They're going to get sentenced to life in prison. 
while Mike Vernon wasn't involved in the robbery, so he gets to go off scot-free. Now, here's the question for you. Whose fault was it that these four men were arrest, arrested and sentenced? It was their fault. So they don't have anybody to blame but themselves, and yet here's Mike Vernon walking around scot-free. Now, can Mike Vernon say, well, it's because my heart is so good and I resisted temptation. That's why I didn't rob the bank. No! It's thanks to me. I held him down. I restrained him. Here's the point. In the same way, those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. They are responsible for their actions. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. There's no pride in it. There's no, well, you know, smarter than the average person. No. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace, says D. James Kennedy, from its beginning to its end. Augustine, the church father, he puts it this way. He says, who but a fool would thank God unfair when he imposes judgment on the deserving or when he shows mercy to the undeserving? Augustine, in his characteristic way, he, he said this. He says, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. He chooses us that we may believe. His election comes first. We don't think about salvation this way as Westerners. I know this is hard for us, and this is not new. I heard this last week about a woman who came up to Charles Spurgeon and she was frustrated by Romans 9. And she said, I, I've got a problem with this. Why did God choose Jacob and reject Esau? I've got a problem with that. Charles Spurgeon said, I've got a problem that God chose Jacob at all. Jacob's just as bad as Esau. Why should he choose Jacob? You know, nobody, nobody ever says, I, I think God's unfair. We should all go to hell. Nobody does that. God is so unfair. He should send us all to hell. That's my argument. Well, we should all go to hell. Nobody thinks that. Not in the Western world anyway. We think God, God owes us something. God has to be fair to us. If someone gets chosen, we should all be chosen. If someone gets freed from their sin, we should all be freed from sin. You know, just, I'll just tell you, I, I do think this is a Western thing. I do think this is an American thing. I don't think the Hebrews struggled as much as we do with this doctrine of election or this understanding of election. I think we have a faulty view of fairness that they don't struggle with. They didn't struggle with. I know they, they had their own thing. They had their own issues. They struggled with idolatry and other stuff. But they didn't struggle with the fairness of the doctrine of election. I think that's more of a Western and an American struggle. Because we value so highly the, you know, the, the self-made man, the, the self-determination, and how we're going to make something of ourselves and our can-do attitude and, and how we have our own personal independence. And so passages like Romans 9 offends us. Here's the thing about Scripture. I've said this before, but let me just say it again. Scripture, if you read it long enough, Scripture is an equal opportunity offender, okay? It will offend everybody, at least somewhere. And what's funny is that it offends different people at different places. Some things that offend us as Westerners, you know, an Eastern person reads it and says, what's to be offended by? This, this makes perfect sense to me. And then other things that we like, that we love, an Eastern person might come to that and say, well, I don't like that. I'm, I'm offended by that. And, and the truth of the matter is, if nothing in Scripture ever causes you to struggle or be challenged or even offended, you're probably not reading it right. It's meant to challenge us. 
Here's an example of this, of how scripture's an equal opportunity offender. I've given this illustration before from Tim Keller. Hopefully this is helpful. Let's just imagine together, if we could, an, an eighth century Anglo-Saxon warrior. Can, can we all imagine that together? Eighth century, eighth century Anglo-Saxon warrior, and he likes to fight, and he likes to kill, and he likes to crush people, and he likes to smash stuff, but he also has same-sex attraction. So he goes to his culture, and his culture says, you know, that's good that you smash stuff. Go smash some stuff. Go kill some people. But this same-sex attraction thing, you need to suppress that. That's not good. So he goes and he smashes and he smashes. And then, you know, an Anglo-Saxon missionary comes to his village and tells him about Christ. And he says, no, 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 listen up, Anglo-Saxon warrior. This is not pleasing to the Lord, neither is this. You need to deal with both of those as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now let's fast forward a little bit to the 21st century. Now we have a modern day man in New York City or Chicago, Illinois or Decatur, Illinois. And this modern day man has the same issues. He wants to smash stuff and he wants to kill people. And he also has same sex attraction. So he goes to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says, well, you know, this smashing stuff is bad. You shouldn't do that. I'm going to give you some medication. Take care of that so you don't want to kill people. But the psychiatrist and the culture and all of his friends say that same sex attraction. That's good. You need to embrace that. That's who you really are. You need to just go all out with that. And then he goes to the church, and the church says, no, no, listen up, 21st century man. This is not good, and this is not good. You need to bow both of these things to the sovereignty of God and the truth of his word. Right? Scripture is an equal opportunity offender. Here's the point I'm trying to make with the doctrine of election. In the same way, you know, we, as we talk about issues where people are, um, you know, saved, elected, chosen by God. There are some people that love the idea of God's grace and God's justification. We read Romans 1 through 6 and we're like, yeah, I love that. Election Romans 9, I don't really like that so much. Whereas people on the other side of the world, Eastern people, will look at this and they say, Romans 9, that makes perfect sense to us. Westerners are too individualistic anyway. We like this idea of God choosing us, but this idea about justification, and we don't, we don't like that. It's too individualistic. Tim Keller says this. You can read this on the screen. No matter which side we come from, and no matter our culture or temperament, then we must make an effort to discern the carefully nuanced balances of the gospel of free election and justification. We must remember the prejudices we bring to us, with us to the scriptures. And we must be willing to learn to balance out our own views. And here, here's why this is important. Let me just be practical. I'm, you know, I'm not just the preacher, I'm also your pastor. So I wanna pastor you a little bit now. Here's why this is so important. Here's why I want you to embrace this. Here's why I'm stressing this so much. When you can get to that place where you honestly say, I deserve death. I, I deserve God's wrath. I am Jacob. That's not great. I deserve God's wrath. I, I don't deserve his mercy. And when you realize that God in his goodness has chosen you, elected you, and allowed you to be saved, then that puts a hole Another perspective on your worship. You can come and say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, in ways that you haven't before. You can say, I deserve something 
horrible and God in his goodness and his grace loved me and chose me and brought me into the family of God. The truth of the matter is that none of us deserve salvation. We all deserve judgment. And God is merciful to whomever he chooses to show mercy. That's the point of Jacob and Esau here. God is free. God is free to choose whomever he pleases. He chose Jacob, he didn't choose Esau. Which leads to my final point, you can write this down as number three in your notes, God's sovereignty is confirmed in his promises. God's sovereignty is confirmed in his purposes. And finally, God's sovereignty is confirmed in his show of power. God's sovereignty is confirmed in his show of power. Paul writes in verse verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Don't you love how Paul reads our minds? He knows what we're thinking right now. He knows the objection. We read all of this and we say, injustice, that's not fair, Paul. He knows it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What is Paul's answer to that? May genoita. By no means. And then he argues from the Old Testament again. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is free. In other words, Paul's saying, God is free to do as he pleases. Deal with it. Deal with it. God doesn't owe us anything. And, and by the way, we need to be careful when we cry out for justice, when we cry out for, be fair, God. Do we, want, do we really want God to be fair? Do we now? Do we now? I don't want fairness. I want Jesus Christ. I, I want the compassion that God showed me. I want the mercy that God showed me through Christ Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. Look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We are saved not by works or exertion. We are saved by God's mercy. We are saved by God's grace. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he he wills. If you read the book of Exodus and read this kind of dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh, there's this thing that's happening there with the plagues. It's like God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then he harden, Pharaoh hardens his own hearts. And, and after reading that for a while, you're like, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, what, what, what happened to lead to this? And what Paul is saying here is that God is sovereign over these matters. God is ultimately orchestrating these things. Does that nullify human responsibility? No, it does not. Is Pharaoh culpable before God for his behavior? Yes, he is. Is it okay for God to use Pharaoh to showcase his power? Is God free to do that? Yes, he is. God says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's sovereignty is confirmed 
and his show of power. Now quickly here, let me, let me transition to application and just give you three applicational points because I know after a message like this, a passage like this, you're like, Pastor Tony, what, what am I going to do with this? What, I mean, how do I live this out? How do I do this? How do I apply this? Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you three action verbs as responses to Romans 9, 16 through 18, 6 through 18. Write these down. Here's number one. How do I respond to this, Pastor Tony? What do I do in light of Romans 9? Here's what you do. You worship. You worship God. You praise God from whom all blessings flow. Here's the truth of the matter. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you have saving faith, then you are a chosen child of God and God loves you. Worship him in light of that. Praise his name. Maybe some of you grew up in a family that didn't believe in the Lord. Maybe others of you grew up on the bad side of town. Maybe some of you, you know, hung around the wrong types of people when you were kids. I know some of you did that. Maybe you grew up in a family that preached the gospel but didn't live it out. Maybe you grew up in a wonderful Christ-centered home and they shared the gospel with you and you rejected it as a young person and embraced it later in life. Maybe you embraced it like me as a young person and have been living it out ever since. Whatever the case, you didn't get saved because of your own can-do attitude. Because you, you know, were smarter than everybody else and you, you figured out when nobody else could. You got saved because of the pure grace of God demonstrated in your life. Paul knows this and Paul preaches this because he was on the way to Damascus to kill some Christians Christians, and God said, no, you are not doing that and you will serve me from this point forward. That's why Paul preaches that. And so in light of that, how do we respond? You don't congratulate yourself. You congratulate God. Thank you, God. You don't grow prideful and conceited. You have a deeper humility about your own wretchedness and God's goodness in saving you, Jacob, though you are. God saving me, I didn't deserve it. And then we worship God differently with more ardency and with more humility. Secondly, here's another action verb for you. And this is going to sound counterintuitive. Evangelize. Get the gospel out. The euangelion, the gospel, evangelize. Does anything Paul say here nullify what he says elsewhere about preaching the gospel, about telling people about Jesus? No. We have a responsibility before God to be his ambassadors in this world and nothing Paul says in Romans 9 changes that or invalidates that. And some of you might ask, maybe you're thinking this right now, well, okay, Pastor Tony, evangelize, I got it, but you know, how do we know if someone's elect or not? You know, how are we gonna know? Are they gonna have like an E on their forehead, elect, and then I know, yeah, I gotta preach to that person. Here's my answer to that. You might not like my answer to this. You won't know. And here's, here's the bigger answer. 
You're on a need-to-know basis with the God of the universe, and you don't need to know. You know what you need to do? You need to obey God's words. You need to get the gospel out. You need to preach the gospel. You need to tell people about Jesus and leave the rest of the Lord. You know, God is honored in that. Even if people reject you, God is honored in the preaching of the gospel even when people reject you. So, so evangelize. Get the gospel out. And leave it to the Lord, the response. And that leads to the third action, verb. We worship, we evangelize, and thirdly, we believe. We believe the truth of God's word even when it's difficult. And if God's word is not difficult for you ever, you're, you're not reading it right, okay? It's intended to be this way. It's, it's compared to a sword that that cuts. We believe the truth of God's word even when it's difficult. Believe the truth of God's word even when it goes against what your culture feeds you. And if you're here right now, if you're watching right now and you have not embraced Jesus Christ as your savior, now is your day to do that. Embrace by faith the truth that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus loves you and turn to him in faith. And even to that, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, well, how do I know that I'm elect? How do, how do I know whether God chose me before time? You know, can I, can I know before I get saved or after I get saved? There's a great quote, I'll close with this, from the theologian A.A. A. Hodge. And I want to share it with you just just to encourage you where you are in your faith and if you're in a place right now where you need to get saved, you need to put your faith in Christ, then listen to this quote. This has been paraphrased a little bit by J.D. Greer. Hodge says, does, not, does God know the day that you'll die? Yeah, he does. Has he appointed that day for you? Yes, he has. Can you do anything to change that day? No, not really. Hodge says, then, then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? Well, you die. So he asks, then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God has appointed for you to die? And then Hodge says this, which is his point. Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Just eat. Eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for living. If you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know if I'm elect or not. I don't know if I should believe or not, Pastor Tony. Listen, just eat. This is the truth of God's word. It's been presented to you as the gospel. Just believe. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know if you're elect. But I do know this, God has chosen us before the foundation of the, of the world and those who he has elected, they will embrace and they will believe. And I don't know if you are, you don't know if you are, just eat, just believe and leave the rest to the Lord. Amen? And church, let me tell you this, just some of you saved, saved 20 years, 30 years, worship, get the word out evangelize. We've got work to do. Trust God with that. Let's bow in prayer and then we can worship together.
Lord, I want to thank you for the, the difficult sections of Scripture that teach us and challenge us and stretch us. And Lord, I know even right now, as people are listening to me, they probably have a hundred more questions that I have not answered today. Lord, in this world, there's, there's more paradoxes than we can solve with our finite human minds. So Lord, I want to pray that in your goodness, the Holy Spirit that you've given us, that you would give us comfort and rest in the truth of your sovereignty. Lord, that we might explore these paradoxes, that we might search out the meaning of your sovereignty and human responsibility. But Lord, that we would also trust you with these deep things that we can't perfectly harmonize. Help us to rest in these truths. Help us to humbly Embrace the truth that we were chosen by God. Not because we're good. Not because we had potential. But as a pure act of your grace. Help us to rest in that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would not lead us to apathy. Or to laziness with our task as gospel bearers, as ambassadors. God, increase our courage and our love and our passion for the truth of the gospel and sharing it with others. God, receive our worship now. We are so limited, Lord, with our brains, with our understanding, even with our voices, Lord. But with the best of our energy, the best of our gifts, Lord, we are here as your church to praise you. We know you love it. So receive our worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's stand, let's sing together, church.